Welcome to the uh, second talk of our session. So this morning, we're going to uh, look at the section of the uh, chapter on mountains uh, that's, that's titled Bones and Marrow, Mountains and Water. And I think we'll uh, get through this section and uh, hopefully even uh, get started somewhat on the next section, which is titled the Sutta Napada on cause and effect, dependent arising and Nama Rupa, because that section we're gonna be spending a, a fair amount of time with. Uh, so if we could get started on that a bit this morning, that, that would be a good thing. And I'm not sure we'd e even finish it this afternoon if we do get started on it. So, uh, that's that's our plan, and uh, the bones and marrow. Just to refresh people's memory uh, from a week ago, we we looked at that in conjunction with uh, with Dogen's introducing that into Mountains and Waters Sutra, uh, but also tracing it back to the uh, the. Dharma transmission story between Bodhidharma and Ika, where Bodhidharma's four disciples who he called to for kind of a, like a big meeting, uh, meeting of the elders uh, as he was uh, desirous of returning to India for the final uh, part of his life and uh, wanted each of his principal disciples to, to give a statement, kind of summarizing their understanding of the practice. And, and uh, after the first presentation, uh, you have the, uh, the uh, flesh of, of my teaching. And the next person, or no, the first person had the skin, the second person had the flesh, third person had the bones and the fourth person had the fourth person being Ika had the marrow and the traditional understanding of that had been well there was this distinction between the four uh, each one being a bit deeper than the previous one until uh, you got to Ika who had the marrow the heart of the matter uh, and Dogen's take on it was quite different. I said, no, actually they all had the heart of the matter. You're really uh, going off base here with that traditional understanding of it. So that's the background to bones and marrow. So now we're gonna relate that to mountains and waters. And, you know, as Shahaku points out to us here, he says, Dogen is talking about the relation between mountains and waters. And then he, he looks at how we typically view mountains and waters, kind of how we build our metaphors from those two so very rich images that really serve as, uh, as sources of some deep metaphors for practice, which is why undoubtedly Dogen uh, wrote about mountains and waters because of the richness that's contained in there. So uh, in ordinary reality, Shahaku says, we think of mountains as solid, quiet, and unmovable kind of like the absolute, right? Our notion of, of the absolute. In ordinary reality, or I'm sorry, that, that was what I just read in, in, with regards to mountains. Uh, while water is soft, musical, and always moving, Water evaporates, 
When it cools, it condenses within clouds. Water forms ponds. Lakes and rivers returning to the ocean. And water is always circulating. So this constant flowing. In contrast, mountains, and then I would in, inject in here uh, another major body who, which shares the same characteristics, stars. Mountains and stars seem immovable and eternal. And that's how they were perceived. Of course, we know better uh, from a scientific standpoint for both of those examples in our time. But even at that, they still kind of present that image to us. So they can still provide metaphors for that, that sort of, those sorts of characteristics, even though we know that at bottom, uh, everything has a lot more in common with rivers, that even mountains are flowing, sometimes literally, when, uh, when a volcano is erupting. So we have this interrelationship now, some primal dualities, moving and not moving, now, water, mountains, impermanence, water, and eternity, mountains. They support each other, like yin and yang. So this really uh, resonates with Taoist teachings now. These, these images pulled from nature and seen as, as these opposites yet interacting and how that interaction creates this rich reality that we experience. And, and that richness for Zen, for Dogen, is described as mountains and all beings, including ourselves, carrying out practice and verification. To see that is a description, I think, of the richness, the vastness, the unbounded nature of these things, which is the container that's not really a container for practice. Even when we have what we call a container, like a sashim is a container of sorts, but it really isn't. There's no container here. It's, where it's, it's an entry gate into boundlessness. A particularly effective one for many people. So to practice with the mountains, with the waters, in, in the full metaphorical meaning of these terms that Dogen is intending here. Dogen, Shahaku, tell us what our practice, the general outline of it, that we need to be free from the defilement of the three poisons, greed, anger, and ignorance, which ties back nicely, I think, to the work we're currently doing in the uh, Jukai class with the Satipatthana Sutra, looking at the practice of meditation, like the last 
chapter uh, from, from that text that we looked at on concentration relates that to dealing with the hindrances. The hindrances, the poisons, you know, choose your poison, you might say. There are all these different lists, but they're pointing to the same sort of thing. The things that are blocking us from realization, that are the roadblocks on our path that prevent us from moving forward. They literally stop us in our tracks. So when we looked at, at that topic in conjunction with the Satipatthana Sutra, we saw the importance of having familiarity with the hindrances, we'll now replace them with the poisons to keep it in the context of, of the current teaching, but the similarities run deep here. Uh, that we need to have that awareness of when they're present, because if we're not aware, then we can't practice. Practice begins with that core awareness. It's like trying to take care of your, your health if you're ignoring an issue that you're currently having. How are you going to be able to take care of your health if you don't pay attention to the messages your body's sending you. So it begins with mindfulness, awareness. Are the poisons present at this time or the hindrances? Because as Shahaku Dogen tell us, we need to be free from them not permanently, but in order to be able to access both sides of, of this flowing of reality, the mountains and the waters, the yin and the yang. And when we can make that contact with them, a very important teaching of Dogen's is that the mountains and the waters in and of themselves have no defilement. Mountains are simply being mountains and accepting all beings within them. And water is the same. Oceans do not reject water from any river. Perhaps this will cause you to recollect from last night's talk about our thoughts. Be, being who we are, that this practice is about being truly who we are. So for the ocean to be what it is, involves accepting water from all of the rivers and other bodies of water that are emptying into it. That's being an ocean. It's being interdependent, which means the entire cycle, because water, as we just discussed, circulates in very complex, intricate, extensive ways through the process of evaporation, condensation, returning 
to the surface and back into the hydro hydrologic cycle of constantly being circulated. So this sense of letting be, letting go, letting be, And with that, I, I think this is a good entry point just to take a short sidebar because this isn't a, a place where Shahaku goes. But uh, as you know, with my uh, interest in, in this uh, uh, notion that I've called Fukan Kaigi to to make uh, more virtuous action kind of the centerpiece of practice. That this is what the universal recommendation should be in our time. So letting be can be seen as kind of falling short here. And that's why I wanted to talk about, bring ethics into this, because it's important that we see how the two come together, their interaction. How can we let go and let be while being ethically responsible in our lives, in the world that we inhabit? And part of understanding this, I, I think, in, uh, needs to involve the understanding that virtuous action in Buddhism, very properly so, I think, is seen as one of the three principal aspects of practice, the other two being wisdom and meditation. And as is the case for all these lists, whether it's the poisons, the hindrances, the Eightfold Path, they're all interdependent among themselves, all these different parts of the three general practices of Buddhism. So without meditation and wisdom, ethics kind of falls off. And the same is true for the other two. Meditation is dependent upon ethics, wisdom. Wisdom is dependent upon meditation and ethics. So they're actually one, but we can look at them from these three different aspects. So this letting be seems to be more affiliated with wisdom and meditation. In fact, last night we spoke at some length about its connection with meditation, with Zaza, letting go. That the, the purpose of Zazen isn't to eliminate thoughts, it's just to let them go not to attach to, not to cling to. So when we look at it in that light, maybe we can then begin to see how letting go and letting be can, can nicely intertwine with, with virtuous action through wisdom through meditation and how those involve at a very deep profound level at their very source this practice of letting go that it's not a letting go 
that all of a sudden just rips us out of our lives. And we talked about this last night too. That awakening is to awaken to our delusion. To the impact of the hindrances of the three poisons in our lives. To the fact that all of our views are limited views. All of our states of consciousness are karmic consciousness, conditioned. This doesn't mean that we can't and won't uh, have those responses to what arises in the world. We will, because we are conditioned beings. With wisdom and meditation, our responses are going to be influenced at a pretty deep level. The deeper the meditation and the wisdom goes, the deeper the, the influence on our virtuous action goes. It doesn't fall by the wayside because we're just in, in the space of letting go and letting be. So if there's injustice taking place, well, let it be, let it be. No, that's not, that's not what this path is. But by letting go, we can come to that situation with Uchiyama's open hands, with right intention, right view, right speech and right action that are informed by meditation, by wisdom. So I just thought this would be a good place to bring that into the picture because I know it was a point of concern for me when I first started you know, studying teachings like this. And I think that that's true for, for many others. So it's, it's important to, to look at it and, and come to an understanding of why ethics and letting go are very compatible. In fact, ethics is deepened because of that practice of letting go. Ethics at its heart is being with. If there were no others to be with, there'd be no ethics. That would be simple. Simple, but not very rich. So in order to enjoy the richness of our existence with all the other myriad beings, virtuous action comes forth. And the way we are with, how are we with others? And when letting go can enter into that picture, we can enter into a place of awakened being with. That rather than being paralyzing, actually is very invigorating. 
And in my image of, of what it might look like if everybody was practicing that way, we'd have this democratic ideal of a free uh, exchange of thoughts and ideas. How rich would that be? Universal. So our challenge is encountering the poisons, the hindrances, both within and without. So how do we respond when we experience it from without? It kind of triggers a similar response within us. You know, last month, when we spent a Sunday morning looking at the teachings of Martin Luther King Jr. That's a key aspect of, of his practice is how do we respond to the poisons without? That we're working to try to change. So this practice of nonviolence incorporates wisdom meditation into its virtuous activity. Which is why it's such a spiritually rooted practice, but one it's been proven to be very effectual in the world of the myriad things when it's carried out and sustained. So that's a little sidebar on this. And uh, otherwise, you know, that does kind of bring us to the end of that section. So before I move on, uh, uh, I want to hit the pause button so we can entertain any questions or comments you might have about this section on bones and marrow, mountains and water. Um, this was very interesting, Dean. I have one question about when you were talking about universal recommendation and you use yeah. the word, and pardon me because of my hearing loss, I don't always get all the words. Uh -huh. So it's Fukan something, but when I look up Fukan, I have Fukan Zazenji. Right, exactly, yeah, exactly. That's Dogen's, that's Dogen's universal recommendation for the practice of Zazen. Right. And what what I replace Zazen with is Kai, as in Jukai, precepts. It's the universal recommendation for precepts. And, you know, where I'm coming from is that in our day and age, this is the, what I think looking at, at the myriad beings and what practice do we need to be focused on to share among ourselves? Rather than zazen, I, I see precepts, virtuous action as the principle that we should be out there proclaiming loud, loudly and clearly that everybody from atheists to fundamental Christians, Muslims, uh, you know, Orthodox Jews, uh, all ends of the spectrum. Uh, we need, that's one thing that we universally need to declare. And it, it needs to be universal in the way it's, it's put out there rather than tribal. So that it, it 
just opens up an interesting realm. That, that term universal is really key, I think. And when we apply it to, to precepts rather than zazen, it takes on, for me, a much deeper resonance. Now I understand. That. Okay, that's, that's it. That's it. Not just kind of something I've been uh, uh, working on as part of my own practice. Okay. So I'm always kind of delving into that. Um, when you talk about um, a sashin being the entry gate into um, boundlessness, mm -hmm. um, I happened to think about this and I, I'd like to hear what you have to say about it. Because I had a friend actively dying this last week and whenever that happens, um, you just start thinking, I start thinking about the death process and mm -hmm. um, Sometimes it's scary. Sure. And I happen to think about it as an entry gate to the other side, which is what it is, really. Oh, and yeah. I, um, when they say moving and not moving, impermanence and eternity support each other, I would like to hear a little bit more from you on that. Yeah. How impermanence and eternity support each other. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, a, a rich question. <laughs> uh, and, and anytime we, we talk about impermanence and eternity, especially in, con in connection with Dogen, it kind of uh, swings us back to his teachings on Uji, which is appropriate here as well, because Uji runs throughout Mountains and Water Sutra, as I've mentioned before, those two fascicles are very close in time for Dogen in terms of when they were composed. Uh, and Uji is, is Japanese for being time. So it's his, his take on the nature of being as permanence or as impermanence rather. <laughs> impermanence uh, as being the true nature of things, impermanence as Buddha nature. Buddha, that's one of the, the ways of, of accessing Buddha nature is through impermanence. And it's a different way than we typically view an absolute, like divine nature, to, to use a westernized term. But divine nature, Buddha nature, pretty similar, pretty similar. So we would think of divine nature as kind of a permanent. That's why in Western thought, we have this notion of a soul. And it's not limited to the West. I mean, this was uh, part of uh, Indian thought as well. You know, with the, the Atman is the soul. And that's the divine aspect of us. Atman and Brahman is the universal soul. And that's us, that art thou, a basic Hindu teaching. And so this is kind of the soil out of which Buddhism grew. So the, the sense of impermanence that Buddhism gives us as being the divine, it's why Buddhism has the teaching of an Atman, no soul. And this relates to Dogen in a very major way, because he, if you read uh, his, his works, uh, with some regularity, he will reference what he calls the Seneca, S-E-N-I-K-A, the Seneca heresy, which is a heresy about the existence of a permanent soul. And he saw that as actually being one of the faults, one of the, uh, the uh, untruths that was being taught by the Daruma school from which a uh, number of his students were coming. So the Seneca heresy was a thing that, that Dogen would return to time and time again, that 
there is no soul substance. There is nothing that is, is uh, not changing. Okay. But within that, there's, st there's still, and this is looping it back to the teachings of Uji and the eternal piece to that. Even within impermanence, there is the eternal. So it's not like if you, if you give up the permanent, you've given up the eternal, which is a response some people would have, I think. That the eternal rests with you know, the divine realm. That's eter the eternal realm. And if you take that out of the mix and it's permanence, then how could you have eternity? But Dogen and, and uh, Buddhist teaching, and gen more generally speaking, I think, actually just kind of transforms the understanding of the eternal so that it is uh, seen as being conjoined with impermanence. It's timeless. So we speak about the boundless nature of reality of each moment, each entity. But it's timeless as well, both timeless and boundless. Boundless is only speaking about its spatial uh, openness. Right. But, but uh, in the timeless realm, it's eternal. It because Eternal doesn't mean it just lasts forever and ever and ever. It means that it transcends our sense of past, present, and future. Thank you, that's helpful. Okay, okay, good. The other thing I wanted to mention, I thought this was really interesting. Um, President Biden yesterday or the day recently called Vladimir Putin either a killer or a murderer, yeah. which I find really offensive, but um, Putin's response to him was about the hypocrisy of the United States. And he talked about slavery as well as some other things. Right. And I thought, good for you. Yeah. you know? I mean, I, we're all the same. Every country has its horrors. Right. And for us to point a finger, right. um, you know, this is where the ethics part is confusing because mm -hmm. here's the United States trying, I think in a way to be ethical, um, but at the same time, clean your own house first. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, it, uh, it parallels uh, the kind of uh, uh, the kind what we would hear from uh, from a figure like Noam Chomsky throughout the years. You know, Chomsky would point to the hypocrisy of American you know, pronouncements. And the way they would justify their activities is, is helping these other countries. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's response during the Vietnam War, you know, stop helping us, please. <laughs> stop dropping the bombs in the napalm. We, we can get by without your help. Uh, and, and that's kind of the sort of thing that Noam Chomsky, who I, have, have a lot of respect and admiration for his, his really uh, irritated a lot of people because he constantly holds up the mirror just like Putin did. Yeah. It's, yeah hey. <laughs> Maybe uh, Putin is the new Noam Chomsky. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> but they at least have that in common for this one moment, you know. <laughs> yeah. All right, so anything else before we, yeah, Joe. You, you mentioned uh, you, you had a mention about practice and meditation. I'm wondering if you could expound from uh, perhaps a, a Buddhist right view 
on the verification aspect, what could we be doing as far as verification? How should we really look at that? Well, yeah, and, and practice verification is, is pretty much pointing to the same thing as practice enlightenment, the way Dogen can join those two. So that the practice is the verification, is the awakening, the enlightenment. It's not a means to an end. That's the important point being expressed with that, is we generally think like in, in science, you know, we, we, the practice would be the experimentation, the research, and then the verification is the result. And we go, oh, okay, this, this, uh, this has been confirmed or denied or whatever. And what Dogen was doing was, you know, pulling, that's dualistic. And Dogen was bringing it together to, to say it's actually one and the same. Practice is verification. So when we're practicing, it's kind of the, we talk about doubt as one of the hindrances. So when one really develops a deep practice in, in your practicing, that is the resolution of doubt because the doubt or the practice is the verification. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of uh, uh, a Descartes, I think, therefore I am. It's right in your face. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, I guess so. It's one of those uh, very uh, undeniable things. I can't deny that. Yeah. Okay, I understand. I understand. I get it now. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank you. Uh -huh. Anything else? All right, well, you're ready for, for the, the really, <laughs> and, and we visited this topic before, so I brought my, uh, at least some of us have, uh, some of you have seen this uh, before, the, the wheel of life and death, the 12 fold chain of dependent co-arising. So this is going to be what we're looking at in this next section. The, uh, although this is going to be a condensed version of it, the Sutta Nipata on cause and effect, also known as dependent arising, and Nama Rupa. And since Nama Rupa is, is an important part of this, I uh, thought I'd get out my, the Oxford English Dictionary of Buddhism and Zen, also known as the Shambhala Dictionary of Buddhism and Zen. This is a handy tool. Uh, so I thought it'd be good as we enter into this to, to see what Nama Rupa has been uh, translated as. Literally, you know, it's a Sanskrit term and uh, rupa is form, also known as body, physical nature. And nama is pretty close to the English term for it, name, name and form. So it's a term referring to the empirical personality in its essential components, the mental and the physical. Coming back to Rene Descartes, mind-body, mind-body dualism. And in Buddhism though, it's actually divided, further divided into the five aggregates. Uh, so the definition from Shambhala here is thus it is also a paraphrase for the five skandhas in which rupa or form stands for the first skanda, form, feelings, 
uh, feelings being the, the first of the, the mental uh, skandhas. Uh, and nama stands for all the other four. It's our interaction with, with the physical world, the mental side to it. So feelings, perceptions, mental formations or impulses and consciousness. So nama rupa, and I think this is a good way to see it, is the five aggregates. And that's kind of an important part of the intro to this section. We're going to be looking at our nature seen through this uh, schematic of the five aggregates and how we ultimately perceive things and how that leads to our actions in the world. And Shahaku goes on to say, and this is some of the earliest teachings in Buddhism rooted in the Theravadan tradition. In fact, uh, one of the best places, one more book I, I pulled out here, uh, one of the best places to find a pretty detailed analysis of this 12-fold chain is the path of purification. Uh, I don't recommend this to to most folks, unless you're really of a, of a scholarly bent. Uh, I just refer to it as the need arises, like for this uh, with the 12 fold chain. Uh, but they have, there's about uh, an 80 page chapter in here that's devoted entirely to the 12 fold chain. And the path of understand the path of purification is basically a compendium of the basic Theravadan teachings. So within the Theravadan tradition, this is a hugely important text. So this this is an early work from the Pali Canon, as uh, Shahaku describes it, and it's important for understanding the Buddhist teaching of interdependent origination. Although that term, and Shahaku elaborates on this, that's, that term isn't the one that was used by these early uh, texts. Rather, in early Buddhism, the correct expression is dependent origination. And he points out that the idea of interdependence is from Mahayana teachings, from, from Nagarjuna. And the meaning there, here, is slightly different. And basically, the difference is, the, the, the view we're going to be looking at here of dependent arising origination is very linear. And that has a value, but within Mahayana and the role of Shunyata and Nagarjuna was the, the great philosopher of Shunyata of and emptiness also known as boundlessness. Interdependence is within a, in the boundless realm is no longer linear. So it's kind of like a flow chart with arrows going off every which way, like Indra's net, that, that imagery. That's interdependence. And that's the difference between the Mahayana vision understanding and the Theravadan of dependent origination. So just kind of keep that in mind as we go through these various links in the chain, because it will be portrayed in a pretty linear fashion. But I think even within that linear sense, it can be helpful.
hopefully you'll you'll feel the same way. And and the twelve links of of causation is is really the final form of this teaching of dependent origination. Whereas the Sutta Nipata, which is what's being pulled from for the portrayal in Mountains and Waters, is, is not the final form. But that's helpful for our purposes here because we don't need the whole, whole damn thing. We can, we can take a segment of it and get the essence of it. And, uh, and give us less to, to wrestle with here in the process. And the main point behind this for the Theravadans, for the, those who, who first propagated this teaching, is that karma continues from the past life, through the present life, to the future life. So you can see right off this linear aspect to that. From lifetime to lifetime. And the, the continuation of that karma is based on ignorance. And remember, for Buddhism, ignorance doesn't mean that, uh, that you didn't you know, finish school. It uh, doesn't mean that you're not very well read or articulate or any of that. Rather means that you uh, are ignorant about the true nature of reality. So you're caught in the dualistic realm of self and other and all the other dualisms that flow out of that. That's ignorance. And because of that ignorance following us from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime, that's dependent origination of our life. That karmic consciousness that we looked at last night, that's from, from this perspective, that's where it's rooted is in this, these 12 links of causation. So the point then is how can we be released from the difficulties we have in this lifetime? How can be, we be released from dukkha, the point of Buddhism? point of the Four Noble Truths, which is the core teaching of the Theravadan tradition. That's the point of the teaching we're going to be looking at here. So out of the 12 links, and there are two ways we can go with this. Since it's linear, we can start. The first link, as I said, is ignorance. And the last link is old age and death. So the, the wheel, the hand drawn that I, I held up and showed you at the beginning of this section, uh, you know, it, it, it begins with ignorance and go around the wheel, just like a, our clock, Divided into 12, uh, the wheel is, is like a clock. It's divided into 12 segments as well, from 1 to 12, with 12 being old age and death. And it's the cycle. Actually, in the hub of this, in that center hub, there are three segments that kind of form that circle. And those three are the three poisons, ignorance, greed, and hatred. So they're kind of, the imagery here is they're driving the wheel. So the ninth link, oh, uh, to finish where, where I was starting with this, 
we can go from, from the first link progressively up to the 12th link, but also we can work backwards. And that's the direction we're gonna be going and following uh, Shahaku's portrayal here. We can go backwards because we, we're thereby analyzing, as we'll see with the ninth link, which is where we begin. It, the ninth link in the chain is preference, craving, attachment. So as good Buddhist practitioners, we understand how this is really at the source of our problems. So we naturally want to know what's, what's the cause of that. Well, all you have to do is go to the eighth link. See, <laughs> as you work your way backward, you can trace back to the cause. Now, since I've already told you what the root cause is, it's ignorance, but we have these uh, eight links moving backward to get from number nine to number one. And that's the direction we're gonna be flowing in here. So the ninth link, as I just said, is, is our preferences, our cravings, our attachments. What's the cause of these attachments? What is it that makes things so important to us? The distorted map we talked about last night, what makes it rise up on the top topographical map? into the mountain that it becomes. They come from the impulse of desire, which constitutes the eighth link. Its cause is thinking of one thing as pleasant and another as unpleasant. That is the sixth link. So we have, we've gone from craving attachment to desire is the immediately preceding link. And then the link immediately prior to that is thinking of one thing as pleasant and another as unpleasant, which is in Buddhism termed sensation or feeling. And there are actually three categories of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Neutral stuff we tend to ignore. It doesn't get a response from us in either direction. So from feeling to desire to craving, we've got three links on the chain here now. And that already gives you a sense, I think, of how this is going to work in a linear fashion. One, one, one link leads to the next, leads to the next. And of course, the way, the reason why this is being laid out is to give us the tools to be able to cut the chain. So if sensation or feeling is the seventh link, then the cause of sensation is the sixth link. What is that cause? It's referred to as contact, mental impression. Where the, and the, the contact is that between our six sense organs and their objects. That's the source of our sensations, our feelings. At the raw state before anything else is added on top of it. There's the, con the initial contact.
So here, then, then I'm gonna, as so we're approaching the next Zazen period, uh, I'll, I'll just go over the next uh, piece to this and uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll stop at that point. And as I suspected, uh, we'll continue with this, uh, this afternoon. Uh, so Shahaku now says, we find the path of liberation within the relation between self and others. This the, literally, you know, I think he inserts this here because this is kind of a, an overarching way of seeing this contact, our contact with others, others not just being other people, but everything we experience is, is other, which is samsara. Again, we can, not to jump all the way back to the first link, but remember, ignorance is seeing things in this dualistic way. So the fact that we find the path of liberation within this relationship harkens back to what we were talking about last night, samsara enlightenment, or the muddy water and the lotus. So we have the sense, and this harkens back also to this practice verification, practice enlightenment, that we have a notion that, uh, that practice is to, and the path of purification, this Theravadan text I, I pointed to, uh, that's what it's predicated on, the path of purification, that we have to purify ourselves of samsara in order to have awakening. So Dogen is suggesting something very different. Dogen with practice verification is saying the practice in the midst of samsara is the awakening, is the enlightenment. It's not a path of purification. It's in this very moment that we practice and that we have our verification, our awakening. But it's a continuous practice and awakening, which is also different than the conception of many people who think that, well, enlightenment, awakening is something that you attain and you have it. It's permanent. You've got it. It's money in the bank. It's, it's guaranteed. Up to at least $250,000, right? <laughs> if you go over that in terms of the level of your enlightenment, well, then maybe not. Up to that level, you're, you're guaranteed. It's good. That's not Dogen's teachings on, on the verification, on awakening. It's moment by moment by moment. And of course, the only way we can verify that is through our own practice. So it keeps coming back to that. Maybe your practice teaches something different to you. But in awakening is very much in, in the here and now, according to Dogen. Because the question becomes, you know, we had the reason why we find the path of liberation within the relation between self and others, that samsaric realm, is because of the next question posed by Shahaku. Is it possible to live without contact? 
if that's a, a root source here, part of the uh, 12 links of, of, uh, of uh, suffering, then are, are we saying that we need to live a life without contact? And the punchline here is Shahaku points out, says this has something to do with what Dogen is discussing in Mountains and Water Sutra. This rich realm of contact that's going on. So that's, I think, a good place to, to close up shop here for this morning. And, uh, and that this way, we'll start this afternoon with a chance for, for questions and comments about what we've talked about from this section before we, we resume again. So uh, we'll, we'll have a chance to check in before we go any further. But, uh, but I think that's, that's a good place to, to close this up keep us on schedule with our Zazen. So back, back to the cushions. May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of one's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. 